And after I accepted that call, he was sobbing. He said, Mom, I've just been jumped by 10 inmates. They were kicking me and kicking me in the head. He said, my two front teeth have been broken off. I have a cut in my ear. He, he said, I'm really busted up. He said, they stole all my stuff except for my Bible. And then he choked back tears and he said, but Mom, after the beating, the corrections officers took me to the faith-based area of the jail. And he said, Mom, those men were just like Jesus to me. He said, they brought me soap and they cleaned my wounds and they brought me a clean t-shirt. They prayed over me, Mom. He said they were just like Jesus. You're listening to the Reframing Ministries podcast, providing help, hope, healing, and humor for people walking through pain. Here's our host, Colleen Swindoll Thompson. Today, we are going to have an extraordinary story told, applicable to all of us through Carol Kent, my guest. Carol, welcome to the interview with Reframing Ministries. Thank you so much, Colleen. It's a joy to be on the air with you. Well, you've made quite a name for yourself, Carol, by starting Speak Up conferences, Speak Up for Hope, which serves families with inmates and their loved ones, um, Speak Up speaker services, and you've had regular appearances on a lot of different shows, including Life Today with James Robertson, Family Life Today, in MSNBC and NBC, CBS. I'm sure some of those you would have preferred not, <laughs> which That's we'll hear right. about. Yes. But you and Jean have been married for quite some time, and you've written over 20 books. That makes me sound very old. No, you don't look old, though. <laughs> You're just an old soul. That's what That's we call it. <laughs> sure. Well, if you keep writing long enough, it adds up after a while. There you go. Today, we're going to be focusing more on this incredible book that I want our audiences to get and read, When I Lay My Isaac Down, Unshakable Faith in Unthinkable Circumstances. Here it is. It is so, so good. And Carol, this came out of personal experience. So why don't you lead in with how that started? Well, Colleen, I grew up in a wonderful Christian home as the oldest of six preacher's kids. Mm -hmm. And after I graduated from college, I married a man I had dated since high school, Gene Kent. Mm -hmm. And five years later, I gave birth to Jason Paul Kent. And he was a little boy who was a delight to raise. He had a sparkle in his eye and he was full of adventure. Uh, during uh, the summer between his sophomore and junior years of high school, he went off to Manitou Springs, Colorado to Summit Ministries. Mm -hmm. And there he really learned the importance of establishing a Christian worldview. And he learned how to articulate that. Mm -hmm. And he came home with renewed spiritual uh, just excitement. And he said, Mom and Dad, I really believe that God wants me to serve in military and maybe even in political leadership. And I believe the best place I could get equipped to do that would be at the United States Naval Academy. 
Well, Colleen, he made application to all three of the academies, received an early invitation to become a cadet at West Point, but he wanted to hold out for Annapolis, and he finally received the appointment, and we were there in May of 1997, when on national television, all of those midshipmen tossed those hats in the air, and we celebrated our young son's accomplishments. From there, he went to Orlando, Florida, and he was in nuclear engineering school. He joined a great church and joined a Bible study with about 300 young adults involved. And there were women in that Bible study, and Jason got very interested <laughs> in a young woman named April. And by the end of that summer, he had fallen in love. Now, I will never forget calling home for messages when we were away on a speaking trip. And on voicemail, I heard my son say, Mom and Dad, some things are coming down. We have to talk. <laughs> well, it's at a moment like that you wish your child would add two or three more sentences about what is coming down. We got a hold of him. He said, my orders have changed. I have to be at Surface Warfare Officer School in Newport, Rhode Island on September 8th. April and I are in love, and we want to get married next Friday so we can go together. Now, Colleen, as a mom, how would you feel about a statement like that? I would be terrified. <laughs> but it I'm makes for an terrible. inexpensive wedding. <laughs> uh, oh, well, that's very true. <laughs> we, we asked them if they would be willing to wait three weeks and to be married in our hometown mm. with the accountability of family and friends around them, and they agreed. And a week and a half later, April came into our lives. And behind April came six-year-old Chelsea and three-year-old Hannah. Hannah was such a little cutie pie. She would sit at my kitchen counter every morning and sing songs in between bites of cereal, saying how much she loved Jesus. Then little Chelsea had been in the house for a half hour, and she came up, grabbed my hand in her two hands. She kissed all over it, and she said, you're my new favorite Grammy. <laughs> well, I was not feeling so badly at that point about my son marrying a previously married woman who had two beautiful little girls. We fell in love with all three of them so quickly. And we realized after getting to know April a little better that she had been through uh, a lot of abuse and there were multiple allegations of abuse involving her husband, and then involving the little girls, their biological father. And we had a beautiful wedding on a picture-perfect day. And if you could see the picture of Jason in his navy whites and April in her dress that came from a resale shop, wow. you would say that this looks like a story that will end, and they lived happily ever after. Mm -hmm. Well, the year began, and uh, they were having really a good year. But as Jason called home, we noticed after a few months, instead of talking, instead of talking about global events or what he was doing with the Navy, he was becoming very upset and distraught over the girl's biological father. He had been given only supervised visitation mm -hmm. due to the allegations of abuse, and he'd been behaving very well, and it appeared that a judge was about to give unsupervised visitation. 
Well, Jason's first out-of-the-continental military assignment was going to be in Hawaii. And if this man had unsupervised visitation, due to how far away they would be, it would mean six-week visits with their biological father in the summertime. And in retrospect, we began to see our son unravel Mm -hmm. mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Mm -hmm. It was now a year after their marriage, and we were into the the month of October. I had a speaking trip to St. Louis, and Jean and I got home on a Sunday night exhausted, Mm -hmm. and we were sound asleep when the phone rang in the middle of the night. And I remember watching my husband pick up the receiver And uh, I looked at the clock, it said 12.35 a.m. And then I saw a look of shock and horror come over my husband's face. And he said, Carol, Jason has just been arrested for the murder of his wife's first husband. He's in the jail in Orlando. Well, I had never been in shock before. Nausea swept over me. I I tried to get out of bed, but my legs would not hold my weight. Mm. I literally crawled my way into my office and still on the floor, I grabbed the telephone and I got a number for the Orlando jail. And after a long time of ringing, someone answered the phone and I asked about my boy. And a a rude voice on the other end of the line said, lady, we ain't got nobody by that name. Jason can in here. Lady, your son ain't here. (laughs) And for just that split second, my hopes came back. I thought, I must be living in the middle of a horrific dream. I will soon wake up and everything will be okay. Mm -hmm. But everything was far from okay. He had just not been processed into the computer system at the jail yet. And uh, Jean and I throughout that night intermittently sobbed. We held each other. We began making a list. Uh, To say that we were in shock is such an understatement. Uh, This is a young man who had been president of the National Honor Society in high school. He had never been in trouble. We didn't need to set a curfew. He came home on time and he was a good student. And we were stunned that this could have happened. And uh, I just remember for the next few days, I would say, breathe, do the next thing. Breathe, do the next thing. Well, Jean said, you know, Carol, I'm going to start reading the Bible over again, beginning in Genesis. We must have missed something. And I remember him rushing into the kitchen and and he said, Carol, he said, I'm in Genesis 28. And he said, it's that passage where Jacob is in a dream and there is a ladder that stretches from earth all the way to heaven. And uh, there are angels going up and down on that ladder. And suddenly Jacob awakens more alert than he's ever been before because he realizes there is so much more going on in the visible and in the invisible world than he's ever been aware of before. And then Jean read Genesis 28, 16 to me. Surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. And we began to understand that when God seems the most absent, he is indeed the most present. I I was in that spot of uh, knowing that nobody in our hometown, except for the two people who worked with us uh, in our ministry, knew what had gone on. It hadn't hit the papers yet. And and so it was that, that sense of very soon the whole world is going to know and everything will come crashing in. Uh, 
we had relatives to notify. Jason had lots of aunts and uncles and cousins who respected him dearly. And it took about an hour on the phone with each of those people for them to even comprehend what happened because it was so unthinkable that Jason could have pulled that trigger. And uh, I, I remember a day after all of this happened, I had a long-awaited appointment for an annual physical, and I needed to get a prescription filled. And I thought, you know, uh, nobody knows what's happened. I I'm going to go, and uh, it'll be okay. I'll have this appointment. And I walked into the doctor's office, and I had that surreal experience of feeling like I was on the edge of the real world, mm -hmm. observing what was going on, but not really being in that world. And Colleen, I looked over and I saw a young mom, I saw a young mom bouncing her two-year-old on her lap. And I thought, my child used to be as innocent as that child. And I saw another woman watching a soap opera on the television in the waiting area. And I thought, she acts like everything is normal. My whole world just fell apart and, and they act like everything is fine. And uh, then I had a panic attack. I looked at the door. I thought, if anyone I know walks in, I will fall apart. I should not be here. And just as I was ready to race for the door, the nurse called my name, and I blindly followed her back to the examination room where she handed me the gown we all wear once a year. And I'm here to testify, <laughs> sister, that when you are under stress, it is hard to figure out where the slit goes and where the holes go. Stress <laughs> just ruins our brains. You're totally. exactly right. Totally. Well, I finally figured it out. She came back in and she took my blood pressure. She said, my, we're a little high today. I thought, lady, if you only knew why. And then I burst into totally uncontrolled tears. And this sweet nurse patted my arm and she said, oh, honey, the exam won't be that painful. And I heard myself laugh out loud and it shocked me. <laughs> Because I did not know if I would ever be able to laugh out loud again. Yeah. And it was a reminder that I was alive and I was human. And I know a lot of people listening to us or viewing us right now might feel like they are in horrible circumstances and they feel guilty laughing or smiling or having some kind of a release. And I just want to say to them, it's okay. God designed you with this beautiful ability to laugh and it allows tension to be released and it aids in your healing process. Well, I got home and uh, we, we were needing to figure out who do we get for an attorney. And this was a criminal defense of gigantic magnitude. And Jean left for Florida very early on. And I was at home pulling the rest of the finances together, which felt like buying another house. Right. And the phone rang. And it was a digitized message asking me if I would accept a call from my son. And after I accepted that call, he was sobbing. He said, Mom, I've just been jumped by 10 inmates. They were kicking me and kicking me in the head. He said, my two front teeth have been broken off. I have a cut in my ear. He, he said, I'm really busted up. He said, they stole all my stuff except for my Bible. Oh. And then he choked back tears and he said, but Mom, after the beating, the corrections officers took me to the faith-based area of the jail. And he said, Mom, those men were just like Jesus to me. He said, they brought me soap and they cleaned my wounds and they brought me a clean T-shirt. They prayed over me, Mom. He said, they were just like Jesus. And Colleen then came a, a 
very definite ending of that 15 minute call because you're cut off completely after 15 minutes. And I remember hearing this guttural wail come out of the depths of my being. And I raised my hands palm side up to the Lord. And I said, God, I cannot do this journey. I cannot watch my son suffer like this. Please take me home to be with you. I cannot do this. And I, I remember suddenly uh, it occurred to me that the mama instinct was there and our son needed his parents more than he had ever needed us before in his entire life. And I got on that plane the next day and I flew to Florida. Well, Gene had already had his allowable 15 minute visit with our son, so he was not allowed to come with me. And I remember waiting a long time. I had always seen my son in uh, naval uniforms with medals. He was in jailhouse blues, he had on handcuffs attached to a waist chain. I heard a shuffle and it was because he had on ankle cuffs with a chain between his legs. And as he rounded the bend where I would be looking at him through plexiglass with an armed officer behind him listening to everything that, that we said, I saw his face covered with scabs from that beating. And uh, I saw the, the big gash in his ear and both of his eyes were fully bloodshot. And then I saw those two broken off front teeth. And for several moments, the two of us just wept, looking at each other, knowing that there could be no do-overs. This had happened and that life was forever changed. And we realized that for another family, life was forever changed. While we were planning a trial for first degree murder, there was a father, there was a stepmother, there was a sister, and, and they were planning a funeral. Mm -hmm. And I know when stories like this are told that we have families who have been on both sides of violent crime. And sometimes we forget that the ripple impact is, is for the victim's family for sure, mm -hmm. but there is also a ripple impact, impact there's also this ripple impact for the family of the perpetrator of the crime. And there are so many people who are suffering in the middle of that journey. And there isn't a day that goes by that we don't pray for the family of the deceased. They lost so much. And we, we never fail to, to understand how horrific that news must have been for them. Well, we got back home finally, and we were not knowing what to do. Jason was in jail in Florida. His little family was there. Gene had helped them move from Panama City, where Jason had been in the most intense dive school the Navy offers on mixed gases at low ocean depths. And we wondered if that had done anything to his thinking. So the girls were now moved to, to the Orlando area where Jason was incarcerated in the jail. And uh, we, we just had to figure out how would we come up with the money to pay for all of this. And one year earlier, my husband had left his job as a life insurance agent. He had been very successful in that career, but ministry had been multiplying for me as a speaker and as a writer. And Gene uh, came home one day. He said, honey, I've been doing the Experiencing God Bible study. And the whole point of this study is look around and see where God is at work and join him. I see God at work in what you're doing, and I think it's time for me to get on board. So Gene had left his fancy office building downtown and had moved into a desk in our basement to run ministry operations. And so, Colleen, there we were with no income but speaking and writing.
and my son had just committed murder. Five days earlier, my book called Becoming a Woman of Influence had been released on how to mentor like Jesus did, how to pass on truth to the next generation. And here I was, the author of a book with that title, and I was now the mother of a murderer. And I had to do all of the interviews connected with that book. But I want to say right here, because I thought about this, um, because I've kind of been stalking you this last week in my studying all that you've written and done. <laughs> you can have coffee with me. Stop <laughs> I, I Let's could. But what I thought about was, um, that's a perfect title because Christ chose someone to write most of the New Testament who had committed murder many times over, named Saul, who turned to Paul. And yes. we, we, we glean so much from him that being a woman of influence doesn't mean bad things in this world are not going to happen. They will happen and God will prove himself through the circumstances. You just preached a whole sermon. That is so true. And what we discovered is that we thought, we, we just thought, well, how can we even go on? Yeah. And I wish I could tell you that at that point, I continued to speak because I was such a solid believer and because I was just so firm in my faith. No, the truth is we needed the money desperately. Mm -hmm. And I remember traveling to that first speaking engagement and not knowing if I could even make it through a talk. And I sat with the worship leader at a meal before the, the event began. And she leaned over. She said, Carol, uh, I have to tell you, I almost canceled. My husband and I have been in full-time music ministry and we're not making it financially. And this week we're losing our house. We're going bankrupt. And I can hardly look at my children and tell them God is faithful. Mm -hmm. We just feel like we're such failures. And I couldn't even verbalize that my son had just committed a murder. All I could do is grab her by the hand and say, my husband and I are in the middle of a gigantic family crisis. And I just remember putting my hand over hers and saying, we will be two broken people ministering out of the depths of our brokenness. Well, she led worship and I sobbed through every song because every song was so meaningful to me. And I got up with my Bible in my hand and Colleen, I began to speak truth from God's word like I always had. And I felt an empowerment mm -hmm. I can only explain in the supernatural dimension. It was as if I was stomping on the enemy saying, you loser, you meant to wipe the parents out with the son and you lose, he wins. And from that point on, I began to understand how out of our most deep, weak places, God can infuse us with a spiritual strength that is more powerful than anything we have ever known before. And out of our depth of brokenness, he allows us to give hope to people in new ways and in more powerful ways. And I remember a woman who had been in my Bible study fellowship class who had heard about what happened. And she came to me one day and she said, Carol, I, I used to think you were perfect, but now I think we could be friends. Oh. And I just started to realize that when we are honest about our brokenness and our 
our journeys that have been less than perfect and about the sorrow, perhaps in a marriage or through a health crisis or a financial struggle or through a devastation in the middle of our ministry or through a child being arrested. And when we tell the truth about that to other people, it opens them up in a way that they start sharing their stories with us. And that was the beginning of realizing that God would not waste this great sorrow, but that he would multiply the blessing of it because I could help so many other people in the middle of feeling like my own life was shattered because they would believe me then. If if I could tell them that God is faithful, even in this, and they could see that, they would see that he truly could be faithful for them too. Well, that's, that's amazing because you went through three years of postponement for the trial. You went it through was, so many, it was what? It was two and a half years and seven postponements. I mean, to prove that God is faithful means you're going to get raked over the coals. <laughs> I mean, we don't think that way often. Yes, yes. But yet when we can't see him at all, he's doing some of his greatest work. And I say that from experience and not from experience I want to ever endure again. But, mm. but because he has been faithful, when we experience the bottom you have hope to pass on. And when it comes in honesty and we're authentic and real, people get that and they begin to trust us. Well, we were contacted by friends, Colleen, and I, I remember there was Kathy in Phoenix, Becky in Texas, and another Kathy in Indiana. These three women didn't even know each other, but they all knew us quite well. And within two weeks, all three had contacted us and they said, we want to do something to help your family. And they connected with each other uh, via, via the internet and phone, and they put together what they called our stretcher bearers. And those people were those folks who said, yes, please send us a monthly email update so we know how to hold Jean and Carol and Jason up in prayer. And little did they know they were signing up for two and a half years of being so supportive. But it was such a precious thing because people like to help when they know what the need is. And I remember shortly after Jason's arrest, one day the doorbell rang and it was the florist. And I opened the door. He said, hello, lady. Are you Carol Kent? I said, yes, I am. He said, lady, it's your lucky day. You're like, well, no, I'm not. I, she's out for the day. <laughs> I said, I, you know, I really don't need a lucky day. Uh, I, you know, some days you just want to be miserable. Mm -hmm. But uh, all I could do was respond. And he handed me one dozen long stemmed yellow roses, the most beautiful I'd ever seen. And I wondered who had graced my day with this gift. And I opened the note and it was from two of my sisters. And it said, Dear Carol, you once gave us some decorating advice. You told us that yellow flowers will brighten any room. We thought you needed a little yellow in your life. Love, Bonnie, and joy. And I wept like a baby. I had never been so needy, but I had never felt so loved. 
And uh, people began sending gifts in yellow packages when they heard this story and cards in yellow envelopes. And they found out April's favorite color was purple and she got purple paperware, purple Kleenex and purple wow. candles. And uh, people were so loving. And there were financial gifts that helped us with these extraordinary legal expenses. And we were loved with such a graciousness. And I just love this story because sometimes we are in a place when we can give to others. And I had always been in the position where I was the one who reached out to other people and it was harder to be needy. I didn't like being needy. No, needy. I don't like it either. And I, I wanted to be the one on the other end of that. Mm -hmm. But I just want to say that there are times when God allows us the, the wonderful extravagance of being loved by his people. And our stretcher bearers did that for us. They were the hands and feet of Jesus to us. And then I began to notice something else, even before Jason's trial, that on my worst days, if I would look around and find one person who needed help worse than I do, than I did at that time, if I would do one tangible act of kindness for them, it lifted my own spirit. It lifted my heart. There was interaction between me and someone else. And I just began to realize this is part of God's plan. Mm -hmm. He wants us to help each other. And in the process of helping each other, our own spiritual heart is nurtured. Mm -hmm. And we begin to feel just that little glimmer of hope again. Because that's exactly what Christ has done for us. He reached yes, down is. to lift us from the cross, the worst mm. place. And yet you're right. It's it's not just saying what I'm thankful for. It's saying this is what I'm thankful for doing today for somebody else because it has encouraged them in a in a possibly transformative way. Yes. Oh, that was true again and again. Hmm. Well, finally, it was getting close to time for the trial. And these precious friends of mine who at one time had lived in the same city where I had lived, contacted me, Karen and Betty Jo, and they said, Carol, we want to give you a girlfriend's getaway before the week of the trial. Mm -hmm. And we met at Karen's Lake Home, and they said, you unpack, we're getting dinner ready. And I suddenly realized they were making me their special guests. And we had a great night of catching up on each other's lives. The next morning, we stayed in our robes until noon and drank coffee on the deck. And that afternoon, they got out old-fashioned hymn books, and they, a choir of two, sang to me, an audience of one, the great hymns of the faith that I had grown up on. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions. They fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness. Mm -hmm. Colleen, for one hour, these women sang to me a concert of hymns based on biblical truth that would hold me up during that week. And I have to tell you, they are not trained musicians. <laughs> but it still, it still nurtured your heart. <laughs> it was so precious. And then they had pre-selected scriptures to read to me before the week of the trial. Well, we got to Orlando on the night before the trial was to begin. 
on Monday morning. And we met April down at the courthouse and it, it's a huge courthouse complex. And we went up to the front door and laid hands on the front door to pray for the trial and to pray for all of the people involved, the prosecutor, the other attorneys, the jury, the judge, uh, the people who were on the, that were involved in every piece of putting the whole thing together. And you should have seen the security guards come running. We had done a Jericho-style prayer walk around the courthouse, but they soon found out we were not terrorists. We were people who were praying for a trial that was right. going to happen. <laughs> and we did those Jericho-style prayer walks for every single day of that trial. And uh, it, it was something that we needed just to, to be in touch with the Lord and to ask him for a miracle of mercy. And it was a not guilty by reason of temporary insanity plea, which is not very popular. Keep in mind, after two and a half years, Jason was no longer uh, upset. Uh, by the time the psychiatric exams were done, he looked like a very normal young man. And so it, it was a very, very difficult uh, plea. And uh, we were told that April, Jean, and I were not allowed to be inside the courtroom for the first three days because we were witnesses to our son's mental state prior to the murder. And uh, I remember watching the TV cameras be set up. There was nothing we could do to keep the media out of the courtroom. Mm -hmm. And uh, on Thursday, it was going to be our turn. And I remember Jean was first, April was second, I was last. I remember walking in, I looked over at the, uh, I looked over at the jury and I thought, are they fair people? I, I looked over at, at the judge, I thought, is he a father? Does he see my son's true heart? I looked at the prosecutor. She had had 20 years of experience at, at uh, putting people in the death chamber and, and behind bars for a lifetime. She was articulate, educated. She was a gifted communicator. I looked over at Jason, and he turned and looked at me, and we just mouthed, I love you. I remember second-guessing everything I said under oath, wondering if I had in any way hurt my son's possibility of ever walking in freedom again. We knew that he had pulled the trigger. It wasn't a matter of who shot this man, but it was a matter of what the motives were and what had happened right before and during. And uh, I, I remember leaving that night with such anxiety. Mm -hmm. And uh, we came back, and that Friday morning, we went through closing arguments and by noon the jury was deliberating and we did seven Jericho style prayer walks around the courthouse during jury deliberation. <laughs> Just to be sure. <laughs> to be sure. And at 5.30 p.m. we were called back in. The jury had reached a verdict. Jason was asked to stand and I could see the court TV camera scrambling to set up and the, the verdict was read. We, the members of the jury, find Jason Paul Kent guilty of murder in the first degree. And the gavel came down. Well, Florida is a state of mandatory minimum sentences, and so we instantly knew what the, the sentence would be because the death penalty had been removed earlier. Mm -hmm. It was Jason's first and only offense of his life. The prosecutor knew it would be very hard to get the death penalty, and that was taken off the table. And uh, Jason was asked to stand again, and the judge said, I sentence you, Jason Paul Kent, to live out the rest of your natural life in a Florida state penitentiary without the possibility of parole. And the gavel once again came down. 
And we watched our son be put back in handcuffs and a waist chain. I don't think I have ever experienced the kind of sorrow I felt that night. The TV cameras were zooming in on the grieving mama, trying to put microphones in front of our faces, and we couldn't even speak. And I saw Jason be ushered toward the exit, and he looked back one more time. And I, I just mouthed, I love you, son. And uh, we got back to April's house, and basically, when you're in too much pain, all you can do is hold each other and weep. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the first part of our conversation. You can find the show notes and referenced resources in the podcast description or on our website, reframingministries.com. If you were impacted by the first part of our interview, it would be great if you shared it on social media or shared it with some friends who you know it would encourage. You can email me personally at reframingministries at insight.org and connect with Reframing Ministries on our social media platforms. Thanks again for joining us today at Reframing Ministries. If you'd like to hear the rest of the discussion you listened to today, visit the Reframing Ministries channel later this week or subscribe to our channel so you will know when part two of the discussion is posted. The Reframing Ministries podcast is a production of Insight for Living Ministries.